This life can throw a lot at us. We are constantly bombarded with deceptions and temptations. We often feel like we are a people without a land and a people without a home. And God says, hold on, endure, persevere. I heard a story from a renowned theologian, apologist, and missionary, Ravi Zachariah. And Ravi went to Vietnam many years ago, and he proclaimed the gospel. He engaged with the ideas and ideologies of the people of that country, and his partner and his friend went with him, a translator. And what happened was the Holy Spirit moved powerfully and mightily in that ministry, and Ravi went home with a heart full of gladness and joy for what God has done. And then he got some really tragic news that his partner, his friend in ministry, the translator, was taken into captivity, was arrested by the local authorities, and was thrown into a concentration camp. What happened was this man was robbed of his comforts, robbed of his family, robbed of his freedom, and was on a daily basis beaten, on a daily basis faced intense persecution, Yet this man understood, this translator understood that to be a Christian means to follow Christ and there will be days of sacrifice. So he got on his knees every single day and he prayed. He didn't have a Bible. He, in fact, didn't have any literature at all. So all he could do is recite the scriptures that he had memorized. And days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years. This man was in captivity for seven years. True story. And he was at his absolute end. He had prayed faithfully every day for seven years, and he was losing hope, and he was having a hard time holding on. The commander of the concentration camp assigned this translator a new responsibility. He was now to do latrine service. So as he was doing that awful, disgusting job, he was cleaning up the latrine. He noticed in the mess a piece of paper, and it had English written on it. So even though it was covered in filth, he put it in his pocket. Later that night, he went back to his room in the concentration camp. He cleaned up the piece of paper, and he was utterly astounded at what he read. Listen. This piece of paper in English said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are, what church? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This man found Romans chapter 8 in a toilet. The same commander that commanded him to work the latrine was using the pages of Scripture as toilet paper. This is disturbing and disgusting, but it reminded the translator that what we deem as filth God, from the ashes, can make beautiful and clean. He knew the Lord was with him. 
In his darkest moment, he knew that God was there speaking to him, promising to never leave him nor forsake him. So just hold on. One day when Ravi's traveling around the west coast of our country, he gets a phone call, and at first he doesn't recognize the voice, and then he realizes that's his friend. His friend calls him up and says, Ravi, I'm free. He had been liberated from his concentration camp, but he rejoiced greatly that the Lord had persevered him and delivered him, not just from that captivity, but reminded him of his presence even while he sacrificed and suffered. That story is a great window into the life of Daniel. Daniel now is no longer a young man. Daniel now is probably about 80 years old. This is towards the end of Daniel's life. And if you remember from our study, or perhaps you've studied it on your own, Daniel was a prisoner of war before he was a prophet. He was taken from his home from his land, from his family, from his people, from his religious worship, and ripped from all of that and placed into a hostile culture. And what happened was he was conditioned and they attempted to assimilate Daniel not only to Babylonian language and culture, but yes, Babylonian idolatry and worship. And whether it's a young man in Daniel chapter 1 where he has to trust God even with his diet because it was connected to idolatry. Or when he was a little bit older and his life was going to be forfeit if he did not interpret the king's dream. Or whether it was his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow before the golden idol of Nebuchadnezzar. Or even, as we studied last week, with the handwriting on the wall, Daniel has seen God's faithfulness from decade to decade, from season to season, and no one would have ever guessed that this young prophet from the land of the Israelites would endure and outlast Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and even the fall of the Babylonian Empire. It's astounding. Daniel is a great example of what it means to hold on Daniel is also a great example of what it means to live among lions. Part of the reason I believe that Daniel had such faith, such belief, such security, even in the face of these hungry, ravenous, violent lions, is why? Because he's been living amongst lions all of his life. Many of us can relate to that. Many of us can relate to the fact that it often feels like You are alone in your workplace. And not only is it the challenge of dealing with people that are only concerned about themselves, only passionate about advancing themselves, only caring about taking care of themselves and their renown and their glory and their name, but there's just something deep in the heart of every single Christian that longs for home, that longs for our heavenly Jerusalem, that longs for what Jesus promises, that is to make every wrong right, to make all things new, to restore shalom, justice, and righteousness forever, and to wipe away every tear, even though we, God forbid, would ever be thrown into a literal den of lions, we know what it's like on a certain level to live amongst lions ourselves. 
Let's look at the very last verse in the book of Daniel of chapter 5. Remember where we've been and connect that to where we are. Because empires are about to fall. New kings are about to rise. And yet Daniel stays faithful. Verse 30 of Daniel chapter 5. That very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So what do we see? We saw that not only Nebuchadnezzar and his reign is ended, but we also see that his son and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom comes to an end. This is the fulfillment of Daniel's vision. This is the fulfillment of the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, that even the most powerful person in the world eventually will end and even the most powerful kingdoms in the world will eventually find their end. What we see here is a transition of power. Now, this is important. What we see in this passage, as we even study the last verse of chapter 5, I think it's important to look quickly at the last verse of chapter 6. We see that in verse 28, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This new empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. Belshazzar was the king of the Chaldeans. So how do we understand this? If you are uh, historically minded, this Darius, Darius the Mede, is not Darius the Great. This is most likely a local governor king, similar to how Herod was the quote-unquote king of the Jews, but he had to answer to Caesar, I believe Darius, answer to Cyrus. But even though he was governor, he was considered king. And even as he was called king, he had a proclivity to believe that he was divinity and deity. But what's so fascinating about this, this important historical moment is that Cyrus makes a decree, church. You remember our study in Nehemiah? You remember what's going on? This is an overlap, and this is so exciting to see and so important for our study. Cyrus the Persian emperor makes a decree that a remnant of the Jews can go back, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, to restore the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild its walls. For whatever reason, and we don't know for sure, Daniel stays in Babylon. Daniel stays under the captivity and the tyranny of a pagan king. Why? We don't know. Maybe he didn't have a choice to leave. Maybe he wasn't allowed to leave. Or maybe it could be this. Daniel understood this very important truth. There is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. We can dream dreams about living in different places, moving to different places. But let it be the Spirit of God that leads us and not us running from our fears or from our baggage. Because we could run to a new place, and we'll find that when we run, our baggage follows us. We would have not only our suitcases, but we would have our problems. And they do rear their ugly heads, no matter what geographical spot you live in. Daniel, this man who you'll see, will open the windows of his room and pray to Jerusalem. He will long for his home. He will long for the glory of God to return back to Zion. He stays. He knows. He believes that God 
can use him even though he's 80 years old. Is that an encouragement for us? If God has called you to serve here, Monmouth County, Ocean County, Middlesex County, New Jersey, this is the safest place you could possibly be. Now, safest as defined by the Bible is probably a little different than how we define safe, right? Because this brother's about to get thrown into a den of lions. Let's keep reading, shall we? Verse 1 of Daniel chapter 6, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Verse 3, then this Daniel became, underline this word, distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because why? An excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him, Daniel, over the whole kingdom. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless what, church? We find it in connection with the law of his God. So we see that there's a new king on the throne. There is a new country that's in charge and a new form of government. There are three officials, some translations say presidents, that work directly under Darius, the king. And then there's 120 satraps, almost like mayors, that are in charge of their local vicinities. What's remarkable about this is that Daniel has withstood all of these kingdoms rising and falling, but also remember, it's astounding that he's doing this as a Jewish man. How many people know that when we see people succeed, there's something in us that wants to see them fall? That one of the hardest things that we struggle with, one of the ways that our sinful nature is most powerful over us is jealousy, is envy. So these men, these satraps, they set a trap for Daniel. What they're going to do because of their jealousy and because of their disgust of his people and of his heritage, they try to do a background check of sorts. And they start looking into Daniel's past and they try to find any way that he has manipulated others or abused his power. And they can't find a single thing. The only thing that they can find, the only way that they could set a trap is in relation to his faith. Oh, would it be said of us, Christians? Would it be said of us, church? If, yes, this waiting, watching world who is longing for people that are trustworthy and honorable. Part of the reason Daniel is still in a place of influence is because he is trustworthy, honorable, but also because he has the spirit of excellence. The spirit of God is working through this brother. But as much as the world longs for trustworthy men, honorable men, they also hate them because they remind them that they're not honorable and they're not trustworthy. So they do a background check, and they can't find any way that Daniel has abused his influence, but they realize, all right, there is one trap we can set, because we see how faithful this man is to his faith. 
We're going to try and set a trap as related to his law. And sure enough, that's what they do. Let's look at verse 6, shall we? All eyes back on the Bible. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the government, governors, all are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which, important, cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. What's happening here? We see a king that is prone to believe that he is very, very special, not only prone to believe that he's special, prone to believe that he's worthy of people's worship. So all the satraps get together, and you could tell that this man's blinded by his own pride, because when it says all of them got together, it doesn't really mean all, because who's not there? Daniel's not there. He was blinded by the fact that this man that he wants to put over all the kingdom wasn't there, but then he's also blinded by his own ego, because they have an election. They have a vote. They said, we're going to make you God for a month, Darius. They elect to make him God for a month. I mean, isn't this ironic? And you know what's even more ironic? Darius hears that and says, yeah, that's a good idea. God for a month? That sounds good. You know what? It's about time. Now, we would never say that. We would never articulate that. But how many of us know that we feel it sometimes? Yeah, we want everyone to know who the boss is. We want everyone to know who's in charge. We really do think that we're in control. We want people, as soon as we walk down the street, to just applaud us for being us. You go. No one else should get the glory. No one else should get the praise. There's a little Darius in the heart of every single one of us. What we see here in this passage is that Darius does something that shows not his infallibility, but his fallibility and the ways that he can easily be deceived because of his pride. He signs the injunction, which is binding. Verse 10, all eyes back on scripture. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Ah. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel. Listen, you can almost hear their racial, ethnic disgust, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Darius will weep. Darius believed himself to be God, but was blinded by his own pride. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Darius is God for a month, right? 
Now, if we're in Daniel's position, I think all of us would be tempted to say, okay, I can ride this out for a month. 30 days isn't that long. I'm just going to kind of pray quietly, kind of pray to myself. Maybe some of us right now are coming under the realization that, all right, if I was commanded by the government not to pray for a month, uh, my life probably wouldn't change that much from how it is right now, right? But he doesn't because he realizes this isn't just about religious inconvenience. This is about first commandment worship. First commandment, the first of the ten, is to worship the Lord God alone. No man and no thing, even in the face of of trial and persecution. Josh, can we bring up this slide? Daniel knew full well that this was the cost of praying, that he was going to have to be thrown, even as an 80-year-old man, into a den of hungry, violent, bloodthirsty lions. And what does he do? He goes up into his room, he opens the window, and then he prays towards Jerusalem which was an admonition that King Solomon gave in 1 Kings chapter 8. But part of the reason I think he's doing it is that this is a good example of civil, humble disobedience. He is saying, my allegiance doesn't belong to Babylon. My citizenship isn't under the King Darius. No, I'm praying to Jerusalem because that's where my allegiance is. I'm praying to Yahweh because he and he alone is my God. You can go to the next slide, Josh. Regardless of what that might be, regardless of what the future may hold, I'm going to pray. He's been faithful in the past. I believe he's going to be faithful in the present. So then Darius is revealed to be a very weak, feeble God. And he cries out to Daniel. Let's look at the uh, next part of this story. We're here in verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast in the den of lions. Listen to this. The king declared to Daniel in verse 16, May your God deliver. May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Really quick, really brief. Why does Darius say that? May your God deliver you. Why? Because I, as Darius, a false, fake, counterfeit God, cannot deliver you. Incapable of delivering you. He cannot even deliver Daniel from his own law. And that's why the truth is is that many of us rub up against not only God's law, but our own law on a daily basis. We all think that we're kings of our own little kingdoms. We all think that we deserve the honor and the glory of God, but we can't even say obedient to our own law, much less God's law. How does the famous song go? I fought the law and what? The law won. God's law is really, really significant here, not only in Daniel's prayer life, but Daniel also understands this, is that the law of God is binding whether you believe it or not. That morality cannot be defined or determined by the majority, regardless of who you vote for your God. God is the one true God. And he, thank God, is able to deliver. The Bible says that anyone who breaks one of the laws is guilty of breaking all the law. That anyone that breaks the law is under the curse of the law. What did we need? We needed a king to deliver us, a king that Darius was not, a king who would be perfect in the sight of the law, 
but then substitute himself for us lawbreakers. And that's why Daniel is faithful. But you'll see that Daniel prefigures and foreshadows the true deliverer, the true king that could save us from a fate even worse than the lion's den. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his, of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And in verse 19, Daniel 6, Then at day of break the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And what does it say, church? Shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done you no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because why? Because why? Because why? He had trusted in his God. Now, if you know your early church history, there's plenty of people that followed Jesus that were thrown into the Colosseum and devoured by lions. This is significant to remind us not only of God's faithfulness. He works miracles both in those that he miraculously saves. He also works miracles in those who give up their entire lives. Daniel said, regardless, regardless of how this plays out, I'm going to trust in my God. So you can almost see a, see a picture here of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? There's a conspiracy against Daniel. All these satraps, all these people that are intoxicated with power conspire to kill him. Similar how Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, all the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, they all were bloodthirsty. There was a den of lions surrounding Jesus. They conspired to kill him. They brought him before Herod and Pontius Pilate. And yes, even the crowd that was singing and shouting Hosanna is now shouting crucify. But Jesus is not delivered from that lion's den. No, he allows himself to be judged by men so that he might save men. He doesn't allow angels to deliver him because he knows that's the only way to deliver us. It's amazing when you think about Daniel in light of the cross. Think of it specifically in light of Psalm 22. When Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out seven powerful statements, some of them directly from Scripture, including, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's directly from Psalm 22. You want to know what else is from Psalm 22? The psalmist goes on in the spirit of God uh, prophesying about Christ. He says, rescue me from the mouths of lions. That good Friday was only good because of our good Savior. In fact, it was the darkest, evilest, most debauched day of all history. The Bible says that, yes, this man, Jesus, was surrounded by a den of lions, 
but there's also an enemy greater than those enemies. And Peter warns us about it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Listen, church, so important. So, so, so important. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. On that day that Jesus Christ was crucified, I have no doubt that Satan, this roaring lion, was prowling around the cross thinking that he was victorious, thinking that he had defeated God's Son, that he had conquered God's Messiah, that he had finally accomplished what he hoped to accomplish when he fell from grace and fell from heaven. That lion was roaring. What he didn't understand was the lion of Judah. You see, what we needed Jesus to be is we needed Jesus to be the Passover lamb, the tender lamb, the sacrificial lamb that was slain for our sins so we could be forgiven, so our sin could be atoned for, so the wrath of God, the justice of God could be propitiated. What we needed was the lamb, and we got the lamb on Friday. Oh, but Sunday's coming. Sunday, Jesus rose from death. He turned back that tomb and revealed that death, Satan, and sin has no power over him and no power over anyone who believes and trusts in him. Jesus, the lamb who died, is now the risen reigning lion of Judah. This leads the scriptures to exalt and to praise. Listen, talking about those who trust in the lion of Judah for God's provision for God's protection, but also for God's power. God says in Daniel that he shut the mouths of lions. That's also the testimony of anyone that trusts in Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, 33 and 34. Through faith, these men, these people, these uh, Old Testament saints conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouth of lions quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned in the strength and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. That hall of faith continues to today. How is God calling us to be faithful even in the face of persecution? How is God calling us to trust him as we sacrifice for him? knowing full well that there'll be days where it's very difficult, lonely, and scary. I heard a story of a young, uh, young man who was at a zoo in London, drunk, middle of the day, and he went over to the lion's pit, and he thought it'd be hilarious. He told his friends, hey, pick up your phone. I'm going to do something funny. So they record it, and I don't recommend you looking this up on YouTube. He's absolutely drunk. It's the middle of the day, and he sticks his hand into the lion's pit, and he says, come here, little kitten. And he starts to pet the lion's mane. At first, the lion looks at him. And then, do you know what's about to happen? This man thought he was strong enough to take on the lion and his teeth and his bloodthirst and his roar. And what happens? The lion takes a chunk of his arm. He barely escapes. Many of us, we tend to think that we can control this enemy of ours, that we have the ability to play patty cake with sin and not have any scars. Here's the beauty of our faith. For those of you that have scars because the lions bite back, 
the Lion of Judah has overcome. When those who trust in Christ see Christ face to face, not only is every tear wiped away, every scar is healed. You know there is one person in heaven that has scars. It's not us. The hands and the feet of Jesus still pierced into eternity forevermore. Those of us that have stuck our hands into the lion's pit and have bitten, bitten, I pray and trust that you would trust in the Lion of Judah. But I also pray and trust that even now you would hear the sound and the song of heaven. The declaration of revelation that says here in Revelation 5, verse 5. Listen, church. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, Christians, Christ followers. Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the roots of David, he has triumphed. Hallelujah. And triumph forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah has shut the mouth of Satan. Has turned that roar into the purr of a little kitten. So God, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that anyone and everyone who comes to Christ can find forgiveness, life, and grace forever, evermore. Heavenly Father, right now there's some of us that we need to, like Darius, learn that we're a really bad king and we're an awful God. And we need to recognize the one true God. We need to remember where our true home is and where our true allegiance lies. So for those of us that need to surrender today, I pray that you would, that you would open your heart. God can, will, and does forgive any and every sin. Believe in the power of his son on the cross to deliver you from your past. Also trust him to cover you with his righteousness in the future. God, would you raise up a generation of men and women, sons and daughters, whether they be youth or they be seniors, that by your grace are faithful to your word. Raise up a new generation of Daniels, we pray, God, and prepare us to come to the cross as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.